0: Mushroom, this is some of my best work. I'm your host, Jane Rocker. Race Around the World in 1997 was absolute appointment viewing every week. For the documentary makers, it was life-changing. And John Safran's case, it's also some of his best work. The specific work is The Right to Bear Grudges, where he's in the African nation, Ivory Coast, to have a voodoo priest put a curse on his ex-girlfriend. John goes into fascinating detail about why this mini-dock was so transformative for him. But it's also worth starting with some context. 1997 wasn't a time of YouTube sending video files, handheld cameras or even mobile phones. Gonzo videography was in its infancy, especially in Australia. Outrage at pranks, stunts or people generally doing something different to the norm of the media was very limited. There was barely five TV channels to choose from at the time. There's a link to the mini documentary in the episode notes. It's worth even pausing here to watch it if you haven't seen it. Worth mentioning also is that his latest book is out now. Puff Peace is a look into Big Tobacco rebranding itself for better or worse. Ahead, there's some incredible insights into a transformative way of telling stories that went from obscure and at times ostracized to everyone copying the gonzo format, from YouTubers to network TV. Here it is, John Safran and the story of The Right to Bear Grudges some of his best work. Point me in the direction of your decision to choose the right to bear grudges as uh, some of your best work. Give us a bit of context of the year and and what was happening in your life then. Uh, well,
1: uh, more than it being what I think is my best work, it was more this... Influential thing for my career that I stumbled upon and just changed all my work since then. So I'm just this guy who, when I'm in primary school at Northbourne Primary, I want to draw comics, but I can't, I'm not quite that, that good at it, even though I buy a book from Coles on how to draw Bugs Bunny. I try to invent a board game. I try to do uh, skits for our uh, once a fortnight uh, skit show uh, that we had at primary school. So I was always like feeling around just having this urge in me to do creative stuff, but I didn't quite know what it was uh, and what I was going to do. And I I, I just experiment around, uh, even going back earlier than that, I remember doing dress-ups when... I'm like super young with the next door neighbor and putting on shows then I'm in high school and i'm trying a bit of comedy, but not and then also try putting a band together, a hip hop act, and you know i'm I'm just always like feeling around for what is this thing? I just have this kind of urge inside me to do something and i would creative and I kind of want it to be special and uh bit because By the time I'd left high school, like in my upper high school years and then first years at university, I started reading around and and looking at the counterculture and the type of artists and writers and filmmakers that kind of formed this murky, hard-to-pin-down space that you could call the counterculture, where kind of outsider artists, uh, you know, think they have something to say. And it's it's kind of, it's really hard to pin down because it's not, ideological in a manner like i can imagine you know a lot of people would think oh that that's it it's about making left-wing statements or, like, or right-wing statements or it's, it's something like that it's like it's not quite that it's about there's a sort of like there's a form of expressing yourself and there's a form of art that is you're you're kind of an outsider and you're, you're coming with this perspective but you're not And yeah, it's really hard to pin. Anyway, I just after all these years since primary school of trying to figure out like what I'm meant to do or whatever, and and then I got a job as a copywriter at an ad agency, uh, because I got a job there, and uh, that was why also studying journalism at university. But I left that, and then I just applied for this ABC show called Race Around the World in 1997, where you had to put together like a they wanted people who'd never been on tv before film documentaries before to film documentaries and like little mini documentaries of four or five minutes and i'd never done anything like that before i hadn't really thought about it i'm not even quite sure how many documentaries i'd ever watched in my life but i uh i i decided okay i'm going to enter this but only in the same way as i didn't have like a particular passion for being on tv or doing documentaries it was just the same urge as drawing those Bugs Bunny cartoons. Like, I want to do something or whatever. And then I put together a mini documentary as my entry assignment where I found this zine in this counterculture uh, bookshop, and it was about this uh, German-Australian guy who lived in Shepparton, and he believed drinking your own urine would give you... um, medicinal benefits so I'm like okay fine I'll I'll interview him so I interview him then I get on this show and suddenly I have to do a mini documentary um, each week and for the first few weeks I don't really know what I'm doing like I don't know like I want to do something that's kind of funny I guess something that's a bit different but I don't actually even know what that really is and then suddenly I think it's like week three or week four of this 10-part show after kind of floundering a bit, I'm in West Africa because we'd organised where. Oh, the show was called Race Around the World, and we had we spent was it eight stories? I think it was like eight weeks, and that's eight stories in uh, in eight different countries over a hundred days. And we had to return, yeah, a little mini documentary every ten days. And there was eight of us going all around the world, and we couldn't, we could never be in the same country at the same time, and. Yeah. And, and there was a lot of like floundering and no one really knowing what they were doing because the show hadn't really been on before. And so I'd booked the, one of my uh, stopovers was in Ivory Coast in West Africa because I'd heard there was voodoo there and voodoo just sounded kind of, you know, that sounded like something to do. And so then suddenly when I'm in West Africa, I realize I've brought a, I can't remember whether I'd thought about this before I left or whatever, but I, whatever the reason was, I had a, a love letter from an ex-girlfriend who'd really broken my heart recently and I had a photo of her. And so I did this story where the idea was like, I'm researching voodooism in the Ivory Coast, but I'm doing it through the filter of like, I'm sort of like, I'm devastated and, and torn by this relationship and, I, you know, I want to I get a curse put on my ex girlfriend. So I go to either two or three different voodoo doctors and I learn the process of voodoo and in this culture, but through this very like intentionally self aware, narcissistic framework. And when I did that story, it's like everything just fell into place. <laughs> I was like, this is what I'm meant to do because it's like a combination of exploring the real world and something that's, you know, important to look into, but then for this sort of humor sake, I make it all about me, but the audience is kind of aware that I'm aware, if you know what I mean, so it's it's not like the audience is like John has no idea that there's humour in the fact that he's this this subject matter that should be treated in a more uh, earnest way, Um, he's just sort of doing it his way, like that was the self-aware joke, and so many tropes in this little four-minute story just went went on to define how I do everything up until now, like the yeah, the whole thing of it's the real world, but I'm going to make it about my backstory. then uh also the whole thing of it's it's not what you should do, like this is meant to be I mean, now the media has changed so much, but back then, there was a lot of humor in the f- fact that I was on the ABC, which is a very was a very serious station, and that the documentaries were meant to be like National Geographic things, and then I'm just like clumping into this very serious atmosphere and sort of making it about myself. But in, in a way, and, and even through that, I learned that there's humility, if that's the word, in intentional faux narcissism, because you're kind of acknowledging to the audience that... Like, I'm not pretending I'm this i I'm this impartial bystander who's telling you the whole truth about um voodooism in the Ivory Coast and I know all about this and it's a bird's eye view and the journalist doesn't have any impact on the environment he's in. It's just like it's it's like it's it's so weird, because it, it does seem like what a narcissistic move to make it all about you. But by doing that I think I like part of the reason, I thought, like comedy was one reason, but the other reason was just getting it out there that like I'm not saying this is some comprehensive thing where I understand a culture that's not mine like I'm so putting myself in it and this was back in the old days where there was a different reality and people loved it like when when I was doing race around the world people were so appreciative that rather than being a doco maker where I'm standing on the sidelines watching you know these strange other. it was like no there i am (laughs) like just putting myself in it and you know taking off my own top and like having having the chicken's blood rubbed all over me and uh yeah and so nothing's all my work is basically came from that and it was such a, a stroke of luck that i sort of like it all it all came together i mean i mean another thing was uh i i think something about my work back then that sort of gets lost a bit because, like, there's been so much water under the bridge and so much time has moved on, is that there was just something so bizarre about a guy. Because he's like, before social media and YouTube and everyone oversharing everything. There was something weird about anyone, especially a guy as opposed to a girl, like, on respectable television. <laughs> and he's somehow talking about his personal life and his broken heart. And like the like the oversharing was so strange, like on T V. Like it was as strange as like just just say you're watching the news and suddenly the the news reporter starts talking about their own personal life. It just seemed odd. And that was also another part of the sort of the the humour and uh Yeah, the oversharing was part of the humour. But now like everyone overshares everything all the time twenty four seven. So I th- I think I think that kind of element of my old work is also um uh gets lost a bit but then then also keep in mind this is before this is before borat or ali g this is before the chaser there was like technically speaking there was uh, michael moore he'd he'd had a he'd had his first film out called roger and me so that technically speaking was in existence which was sort of like you could compare it to my style of work but i I wasn't aware of it you know what i mean (laughs) this is is like this, this is like at the very early days of like these, like pre-Google internet and everything like that and 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 the reason I arrived at doing this I realized was when, when I because I went to a very religious orthodox Jewish school for high school and when finally I got to university in first year uni I was just so it was such an explosion of like of my senses where I was digging into like looking at all these things in the library about different cult uh counterculture movements and how different you know like something i'm reading whatever like Hunter S Thompson and Franz Kafka but then i'm also so i'm learning about gonzo journalism but i'm also learning about like there's all this stuff i'd never seen before and what and one of the things that i learnt about i was this uh movement called the the Yippies from the 1960s and so not the hippies and not the yuppies from the 1980s, but the yippies. And this dude called um, Abby Hoffman was one of the, you know, the forefathers or founding fathers of that. Where he had a book called "Steal This Book," where already like the whole troll of that, like trolling before trolling. You know, like you're working into a, you walk into a bookshop and there's a book called "Steal This Book." Like, what does it mean? I don't understand or whatever. And then, but a- Abby Hoffman did a lot of pranks, I guess, or performances or stunts. Where there was some subtext behind it, even if it was a bit woolly, so it wasn't just like um, lighting your own fart or whatever. Like I, I read that he did a thing where he got people to uh, surround the Pentagon, and they were going like called this whole thing about how they're going to levitate the Pentagon or whatever like that. And so this thing that sort of touches on politics because he was coming out in the time of the Vietnam War, but. Yeah, I think I think, but I think maybe even late sixties. But I could be wrong by that. So fact check me on that. Even though it was political, it wasn't political in that Michael Moore or like heavy-handed way. It was more about because this is back in the olden days when like the right wing people and the conservatives and the church people they were the finger waggers and trying to keep you down. And so there was something about just by doing these stunts, there was like an expression of freedom, and an expression of like. I'm not going to be kind of pinned down by conservative society and everything like that. And, and anyway, so I read a bit about the yippies and their stunts with subtext, which I sort of found interesting because I remember, because I'm totally not into pranks at all, like in my real world or when I was growing up. Like, I'm just totally not into them. Like, I, I sort of remember the show called Candid Camera and there was sort of like, there was some interesting stuff in that because that talked about, even though that show was like mainstream and not really trying to be academic or whatever there was a lot of there was a lot about or there, there was there were elements of that about uh what do you call it mo- uh, mob rule mo- conformity where the joke was that you know if one per- if you're in an elevator and one person who's the you know the actor just turns the other way in the elevator suddenly one other person's like, why is that person just suddenly turned and faced it the other way? And then the second person does it, like, who's just a normal person. And then now that two people have done it, like, a third person does it. And then, like, the whole everyone's turned around now in the, in the lift, even though, like, there's no reason. It was just like this weird peer group pressure because the first person. And, and so um, I started reading about stunts like that when I was in university and about sort of like how stunts could sort of like demonstrate deeper things and performances could illustrate deeper things. And, but having said that, I never, like it wasn't particularly important to me. Like there's that somebody I just said about Abby Hoffman or whatever like that. Like it wasn't, it was just like something I read and it wasn't like, oh my God, this is what I need to do or want to do. I kind of read it like I read, you know, like I find out about, you know, uh, Lenny Bruce and I found out about all these other kind of cultural icons from the past. But then, then, and then I was I was on a holiday, and there was this guy who was like a prankster. This is when I was working in advertising, and he kept on doing pranks the whole time. I found it like, like not annoying or something. But I was definitely not like I was like just noting it. And uh, and then suddenly, when I'm thrown into the deep end on Race Around the World, and I have to come up with some stuff, suddenly that all congealed in my head at some point, and I was like, okay, well. There's a lot of pressure for me to do, like, come up with some funny work. I know I want to do something something quirky, and so all that stuff that I'd sort of, I'd I'd learned about the yippies and my friend doing the stunts, even though that wasn't me at all, I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use that for my work. I'm gonna, like, that just seems like a thing to do, and it was like instantly surprising. Like, I got feedback straight away, and, and I was like. And, but it just felt right. I remember even before I sent the story overseas uh, back to Australia, because I'd done two or three other stories before, and they were like me trying to be quirky, but it was like quirky, but it wasn't like I hadn't solved it. And, and then I just, when I did that, I can't tell you, before I sent it back to Australia, I just felt like I'd solved it. And I felt like my whole, like, this is what I'm meant to do. And then, you know, all these decades later, I'm, you know, exploring Philip Morris's cigarette company and it's the same shtick. It's like me on this important journey where I am finding out things and I am being a journalist, but I'm making it all about myself and I'm telling all these backstories and how all these backstories are affecting how I see cigarettes and it's about my ex-girlfriend. His father died of lung cancer from cigarettes and, and so on and so forth. So that's why that's why that piece of work in the was so important to me because it's just, it's pretty much everything i've done since has been a version of that and can you imagine for someone who's since whatever grade three or grade two or grade three wanting to kind of find an outlet for their creativity where you 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 figure it out and it's like oh my god it was like such a relief and i feel so uh, lucky that 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 happened and also because as i said it's like if you look at my work now it would seem like I wanted to be a documentary maker or a journalist. It's just not true at all. I was like doing all this other stuff and then this race around the world opportunity happened. So I just kind of like, felt, I thought, oh, okay, I'll do a documentary. And I've I've done a few refreshes since then, which I'm really happy with. Cause I just think, I don't know. It just seems fun or whatever. Like the fact, why am I a writer, by the way? Why am I a true crime writer? It's the same thing. I just, it's like, I never thought about being a true crime writer before. Like, the situation pushed me into being a true crime writer because uh I was filming a documentary and I was hung out with this white supremacist who then, uh, uh 11 months later, when I'm back in Australia, he gets murdered by a young black guy or killed, at least, by a young black guy. And then I'm like, oh, it's really hard to get a TV show up really quickly or whatever. I've heard about these things called true crime books. Like, if I'm going to do this, I'm, I just have to do it. Like, I have to do it on my own bat. I do, like... The court case isn't going to wait for me. I can't spend a year, you know, applying for grants to screen Australia <laughs> or whatever like that. And then I just thought, I'd never read a true crime book before. I don't even think I even knew what a true crime book really was. Like if you would have said, what's a true crime book? I would have said, oh, is that like an encyclopedia of of serial killers or something like that? And then I just start reading <laughs> true crime book and I, I would have read like a dozen or something like that, maybe even more, maybe 15. And then... I'm like, okay, this is the blueprint of how you write a true crime book. And then I'm over in Mississippi, and suddenly I'm a true crime writer. And, uh, and it was the same thing. It's like I'd never thought about it before I kind of thought about it. And it's, and it's just – anyway, so that's that. <laughs>
0: to come back to i guess you being on the ivory coast in west africa and as you say you know finding yourself bringing in that element of humor having re-watched that i mean i remember watching race around the world myself i'm only a couple of years younger than you but i do remember that show and i remember you and i just wonder what was going through your mind there because it's not like you can just message someone on your phone and go fuck I've just found this out. What do you think? Like you really yeah. have to rely on your own hunch. You're there and you're just yeah. going with it. Then you've got some guy spitting in something and you're going to have to rub that on your face and you've got to sacrifice something. Yeah. I mean, how easy was I know we see the the end result, but how easy yeah. was it to try and create a storyline as well and find these voodoo priests?
1: Also, <laughs> I find the hardest thing is interacting with people. <laughs> so, and it almost doesn't matter. How benign it is. So, for instance, if you were to say, "I'll go up to some person and start talking to them about their day or something," I'd just be so I don't know, awkward about it. And, and so, so, so the and in some ways, I really like in my work that I get to go up to people and I have a backstory for why I want to talk to them because I absolutely I'm, Jesus voodooism, like amazing. <laughs> like I just want to talk to them about it, right? But if I was just on a holiday or something or I bumped into them in the street, it'd be like a bit awkward. But being able to say, I'm filming this thing and I'd like to find out whatever, like that just made it really easier. And then I guess another thing with that story that's really uh, carried on and in my storytelling is that alchemy of like highbrow versus lowbrow and the fact that I just love that (laughs) so much and I can't. I can't not do it. And part of the reason I like dealing with serious topics is because I just know it's just going to make the storytelling easier because I'm going to be able to be silly and it's just going to be fun, silly because there is that seriousness that's already there. That's already planted. Um, You know, like, so So that's another thing I learned from that. So the whole thing of like me getting in too deep and rubbing the saliva over my face from the voodoo priest, like that's a little bit of the cheekiness again, that you're not meant to do. And, and also I like I definitely do that for the storytelling because I don't know if I'd really want to present that side of me but I just I have really noticed that sometimes you go along with everyone makes out that like doing what you're not meant to do is either bad or or arrogant or nasty or, or sometimes people are like that or they put it in the most melodramatic terms when I found for as a storyteller sometimes it's going with this impulse of like just doing what you're not meant to do it's not that melodramatic. It's not like you're being a bad person or whatever like that. But it's the the creativity that you can hit upon, the, like the minds of you by just doing what you're not meant to do. Like as a so, so, you know, as a storyteller, like, you know, I mean, yeah, this is meant to be like a National Geographic thing. And I'm just going to, yeah, yeah, most people wouldn't rub the saliva on their face. They'd, they'd kind of pull back at that point. But I'm going to do it because you're not meant to do it. I remember, like, an, uh, like, just jumping a bit. Another example of me just doing something because it doesn't seem like what you're meant to do, and then it ends up being like, "Oh God, that's cool." Is when I did this show, um, uh, John Saffram versus God, and I had these little editorials, like at the end, where, and the whole point of the editorials was like, not pandering to the audience, like, but instead, like, attacking them, and you're just not meant to do that. So, like, for instance, I think there was one where it was about how you know, the ABC crowd that watch this all think Americans are idiots. And, you know, like, uh, can you believe Americans, uh, you know, they wouldn't be able to point to Zimbabwe on a map or whatever. And then I'd like start attacking the audience. I think, oh, sure, yeah. But yeah, if, yeah, yeah. If I, uh, here's a map, goddamn, point to Zimbabwe or whatever. And I I get into this whole thing of how, like, my audience are jerks for, for, like, having, and I, I kind of question all their assumptions. And that, but the audience knows I'm doing it and I'm like on their team and it's kind of fun. And, and it was just like this thing you're just not meant to do because everyone on TV, like their thing is to like pander to their audience. And to so the thing is, if you're left wing, you make fun of the right wing. And if you're right wing, you make fun of the left wing and so on and so forth. And there was just something so, so funny to me and where I was like, going, you're just not meant to do this. You're not meant to be on TV, not pandering to your audience. And then... Um. Yeah, it's just fun, and 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 that. Yeah, that's also. I also think. I mean, this is hard to pin down, but I really reckon me kind of going a bit gonzo, like on a story set in West Africa, is so much less like condescending than trying to do a pandering story where it's like, oh my god, I'm here, I'm heartbroken. There's people with different colour skin, and they've got a different culture to me. Oh my god, or whatever. There's something like kind of cooler, and I just. I mean, this just doesn't wash in twenty twenty one because all the rules have changed. But I actually think what, like me being in West Africa, exploring voodooism, and just being kind of a bit of a free spirit about it, making it about me. I'm talking about the ex girlfriend, and not like making this just like this melodramatic, teary, weepy. My God, oh my God, this precious thing, and blah blah blah. Is actually, I think it's more moral if you if you're going to bother make a point about it because you're not pretend, you know, you're not being condescending. And all that jazz. And obviously there's areas of grey or whatever, but I think that's also another reason I did the work like that. I, I just had this thing in me where I'm like, I just don't feel comfortable doing some National Geographic weepy thing where I'm standing on the sidelines, sort of like teary-eyed about this other culture or whatever like that. And that would have also been partly, I mean, I'm just doing a therapy session here now, trying to figure out why I did all the stuff. But definitely like growing up where I went to in year like i went to a normal primary school normal and then i went to uh, state high school for one year but then my parents sent me to this ultra orthodox jewish school from year 8 to year 12 and my parents weren't like that they just sent me there because they thought a small strict school would like bring me back into line cuz i like like my marks were really bad in year 7 and boy were they mistaken because the school was just like anarchy <laughs> it was just anarchy in big furry hats and and side locks and, like, the teachers were, uh, the religious teachers, uh, many of them were, like, missionaries from New York, where it's sort of um, this the, this particular sect of Orthodox Judaism, the Lubavitch, that's where they were, their headquarters were. So we had, like, there was, like, this sque- squeaky New York vibe <laughs> to the whole school, and you're everyone, like, you're allowed to be, a, and you're allowed to, like, kvetch, like, and you're allowed to, like, complain in class, and you're allowed to be funny. You never got in trouble uh, for... So I was like in the weirdly in Belaclava, Melbourne, in this little ghetto that was for some reason uh, ultra orthodox, but not even ultra orthodox in a bad way, like in Australia, but like in New York, where and and anyway, that the, the whole all those contradictions of that and me me seeing that these oh, these uh, these men with big furry hats and these side locks, you know, they, they, it's not all this like oh, this delicate mystic culture or whatever like it's more they're human and they're people and there's all the contradictions and so that would have really softened me up for this idea of oh just because someone's wearing a different hat than you (laughs) doesn't mean you have to start being weepy um on the sidelines
0: and John, can I ask you, I mean, as you say, it, it is a bit like a therapy session, looking back and working out why you've chosen this particular moment in your career and, and what it led to and, and what it says about the way you've approached your work since. But I wonder if... Um, you do remember what sort of happened immediately after that. I mean, I guess, as you say, now it's so easy upon reflection to think of all yeah. the all the things that have come after, particularly, yeah. as you say, Ali G and Barat and so on and Chaser. But you were way ahead of everyone on all this sort of stuff. Do you give yourself credit for that too?
1: Well, yes, but I do say, but I was soaking up. It was, it's like I wouldn't have done that. This just shows... Uh, at least for me, one one of the things I always find interesting is people like ask me like, oh, "How do, how do you get your ideas, or what do you do with that?" And so much of it is I read books. <laughs> and I just gotta sort of, like soak up, and you're not somehow you're not meant to say that, and not that you're not meant to say that, but it seems like surprising, especially because I'm an author. I just like I'm always like reading books and learning. I'm soaking up like the storytelling architecture in a book, or even if I'm watching TV or whatever. Like I I watched White Lotus recently. And I, could, I don't just watch it. I'm, like, soaking up, like, how are they building the characters, how are they telling this story or whatever. So even though it is true, like, like my stuff was before Ali G and The Chaser and everything. And, yeah, it was just a people's mind were blown well on TV. The, on the other hand, it was, my God, if I wouldn't have read those books when I was at first year uni, <laughs> learning all about the yippies and learning about that stuff, like, my God, what would I have done? <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't have known what to do, and and be, because it wasn't just Abby Hoffman. I also read about there was this. Uh, my it, there was this, and this was like like black and white, and I and I think and it was like just an audio recording thing. So this is like really this is like pre-candid camera, and there was some lunatics that for some reason they thought it would be a good idea, like as this sort of like dark comedy, to go up to people and try to talk them into robbing a bank or something. <laughs> I forget when they filmed this, it was it the 1940s, 1950s, but they had their big recording equipment just in a suitcase or whatever. And it's these like insane recordings of convincing normal people you've just gone up to of like robbing a bank. I remember like listening to that. So I was like, yeah, if it wasn't for all that stuff, I don't think I would have realized I can um, uh, do what I do. So I'm I'm very grateful for that. So another thing that was kind of interesting is like there was a ex-girlfriend involved so what happened with that and i'm gonna totally take the steam out of everything because i want everyone not to hate me i'm friends with her now like all these decades later so it's (laughs) it's all fine all happy even that i got a sense of because she was a bit like because why wouldn't she be and because it just wasn't stuff like like this on television like because this was 1997 and we had one of the biggest flukes as well as everything else, I was like just so fortunate and shows how I was so lucky. Was we had the first cameras, the first generation of cameras that had flip screens. So, if we would have gone out one year earlier, we would have had these more old school TV cameras on our shoulders. And indeed, Race Around the World, I think, was a French Canadian show beforehand. And that's what they had. They had, so if they wanted to film themselves, they had to set it up on a tripod. It was all like old school TV. And then with us, just by total luck, it was the first generation of cameras where you could flip the screen and hold it up like a video diary. So everyone's mind was blown watching the ABC just on that level because it was like, what is this? Because back then TV was all very slick and well lit and you just did not have things like it. It's like it wasn't acceptable in the same way that you wouldn't buy a book from a bookshop that had like mud smeared in it. You just did not have TV that wasn't well-lit and uh, and also the sound quality all perfect or whatever. So we had this other great thing with this. There was a real energy to our pieces because... And people were watching it just going, what is this? Like, I just don't understand. Why is that guy's, you know, nose too close to the camera as he's holding his arm and it's partially in shot and, and, and it's just not well-lit and he's squeaking? Even the fact that I was... Like now, because everything's everything seems normal. Like you're allowed to. There's so much more flexibility now. But even me and my voice was a bit like stood out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, and and you're thinking, hey, John, it still does kind of stand out. But even that was sort (laughs) of like the media was so much more restricted. Like when when I was on the radio, when I went to the radio afterwards, it was a bit not controversial or whatever. And obviously, if you're like a community radio station or Triple J or something like that, like it's all about. Trying to have fun and pushing the boundaries, but even that wasn't like that was a bit edgy. Like, it's totally unintentionally edgy because, like, to be in the media, you had to have the voice like this or whatever, and, and yeah, and the shots had to be lit like that. <laughs> and, and then here's me squeaking about my about my ex girlfriend on uh, on like prime time television.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think we had John Howard as our PM. It was a pretty crazy time in Australia.
1: <laughs> yeah, and also there's like. Because everything was there's just like five TV things. I don't think there was cable back then, so things of became like much more experiences or whatever. So, so so yeah, it's like race around the world was just pushed in everyone's face because like ABC was is very popular as it was back then as it is now. So you didn't have a choice; like you just had to watch. Uh, you know, you had to see me squeaking in bad light if you were just like because uh, there, there weren't you know you, there wasn't cable. And there wasn't YouTube, so I, I anyway. Oh, sorry, my ex girlfriend, right? So then there was a bit of um, drama with that because she heard about there was a bit of lag time, and she somehow heard about it. I don't know how. I think they contacted her, maybe the some reason she came out. So there was a bit of like managing things and like explaining because her name wasn't mentioned and her picture was pixelated, yeah, and right. all all that stuff. So there's a bit of managing that, but even that. I, uh, there was something about, like, inter- inter- introducing, like, personal drama that was just so interesting to me, like, creatively, and then, like, several years later, I remember listening, because I know he's, like, really lame now, but the first two Eminem albums, one of the funny things about them, is it's like a rap up, rap, 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 and he just, just, like, weaves into it all these, these quarter stories, like, he doesn't even tell the whole story, you just have to, like, slowly pick up his personal life, and it's like, oh, okay. You've got a daughter called Haley. Okay, okay, got that, got that. And then, oh my God, you're having a fight with this woman called Da, and it's all this. And I just thought, oh, that's why I kind of liked that kind of element of my work when I was doing on, like, on that in that story and on Race Around the World. <laughs> there's something like, like this. Is, I don't know why, creatively and storytelling-wise, there's just something kind of cool about bringing in. As long as you're kind of like self-aware about it and you know what you're doing and you're handling it in the right way, like there's. Again, it's just a thing you're not really meant to do. So there's just something like really cool about doing it.
0: A lot of what you do involves, as you say, the reading, the in-depth analysis or just exploring of something, particularly as a writer, you do that. But when it comes to what you were doing on Race Around the World and shorter series after that, it's quite a different format, isn't it? You've got to sort of deliver things way quicker. I wonder, but how easy was it to put it together?
1: I'm glad you asked that because I've just remembered something, Mm. which is, I, so I, when I left uh, high school, I I started doing journalism at RMIT, but I was also doing a night course learning copywriting. It was like this in, industry course. And then I got work experience at an ad agency. And then I got a job at an ad, ad agency. So I le- left journalism. And for two years, I don't know how long it was, whether it was 18 months or two years, I really can't remember. But I worked just writing ads, like 30-second, 60-second ads, uh, like yep. several a day, for like eighteen months, and and even though anyone watching ads on TV or whatever would just be going, Jesus Christ! Like, like, you know, like surely you can just like dribble out anything and that's acceptable. But maybe maybe the maybe that's sort of like the end result of what happens from the process. But when you actually are employed by an ad agency, you just have to come up with ideas like. I can't go to the creative director, even if it's like for Bevel's jeweler or for something. I can't go to him and go, oh, here's just someone talking and there's no point to it. And there's no twist. And there's no like, you can't do that. Like your job is to just come up with these ideas after ideas that have beginning, middles and ends and always have a sting in the tail, have a twist. You don't expect that or whatever like that. So my brain was just hardwired over those two years to just come up with like not being fussy about like oh I've come up with one idea and that's it or whatever. You'd have like any day you'd come up with whatever, a dozen, two dozen ideas and and it was just like, Oh, so so I stopped being sort of like precious about thinking the first idea I'd ever thought about is the most important idea. Like and, and so and this whole thing of having to just come up with ideas and my brain hardwired to come up with ideas that, that operated in this short form of in the case of ads you know 30 seconds a minute and in the case of I reckon that really helped me on Race Around the World because there was definitely my stories had that thing to it where it was like there's almost like there's the gimmick that you'd expect in an ad in it and there's a beginning middle and end to it and there's you know trying to be punchy and all that stuff like that so thank you advertising industry because so, I think and I in fact got a bit not bitter and twisted but Later, when I was trying to expand into other work, I was actually a bit annoyed that I had to... Like, when I started writing books, and I just realised, my God, if I would have spent those two years, instead of in advertising, learning how to write a book, this book would be a lot easier to write. And I, would, I wouldn't have to be, like, going through all this drama <laughs> of figuring it all out for myself, you know, age eight, in my 30s or whatever. So, I, I do think there was that downside to it. Like, I, I, re- I reckon... In like in some ways, I wish I'd spent those years deciding that I wanted to write a screenplay or something, or deciding I wanted to write a book or something, and then learning all of that rather than having to slowly learn it when I'm older. But still, it's exciting to have to like learn new things. Like it's so exciting. Um, yeah. Like like I'm onto my third book now, and the things I learned from my first one compared to my second one, and one of the cool things, even with my book now. Was the things I learned whilst writing the book, which is so different to well, it's like a different thing to like the topic of the book because my books are about things. I think it's either to think that, oh, that's what's in my headspace. Like my headspace is, in the case of this book, it's like, oh, this evil cigarette company and John Saffron's bitter about them and he, he wants to take them down. It's almost like, oh, uh, the form of the book or the storytelling is like some incidental. Side thing when really I'm like the other way around, I like like part of the reason that journalism's so thorough in this new book compared to my other books is like I was thinking that's going to make the storytelling better is, and also because I'm exploring new stuff that hasn't been looked at before or whatever.
0: maybe just reflecting participating in race around the world now, just your view now on having done that.
1: I just think I was so lucky that I was at a moment in in time where that medium, that rough-and-ready gonzo thing, like, was ahead of the curve, like, way ahead of the curve. And I was kind of, like, pushed into that. Like, I wouldn't have arrived at that myself. Like, now, because everyone's got a phone in their pocket and everyone's filming everything, it's just a different game. Like, you've got to come up with – you've got to weave and duck and turn. But no no one's, like, interested that you're 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 sort of stuck in the middle of nowhere – and you're badly shooting something anymore. Like, that's just everything. So, I remember watching this thing a few years ago on television, either SBS or ABC, and some dude had embedded himself with these Kurdish freedom fighters, and he's, you know, he's lying in this, uh, you know, behind these rocks in this uh, dilapidated building, and there's gunfire, and they're being shot at. And just because like, because of YouTube, and because everyone's got a camera. It, it was, like, bizarrely a bit of, like, yeah, sure, <laughs> whatever, whatever, you're embedded with Kurtz having bullets fired at you, but whatever, and it sort of, like, didn't have the same, um, you know, and it was obviously really good, and I, I, I'm sure, I think he survived, so very good for the, that, but doing that stuff, like, I broke into Disneyland, and, but like, people, I, I can't tell you how Back in Australia, people's minds were so blown by all this because they just had not seen this like gonzo storytelling filmmaking before. And like, yeah, people, were, it was like they were on Red Cordial, kind of like running around in circles. Going, going crazy.
0: It was fun. You're right. There was nothing like it. And once we saw it, and I mean, I even read that some of this stuff didn't even then appear on TV. Got Like, what was the Ray Martin stuff that got pulled down and then it was like you had to find it on YouTube. The Paxtons. We all remember the Paxtons. I mentioned it to someone this morning on my walk. Yeah. I said, oh my God, that was the funniest thing. Yeah, that was. It was
1: like kind of weird after I came back because someone said to me, they said, oh, you've got to watch this and they gave me like a, a dubbed VHS copy of Michael Moore's Roger and Me and that's where Michael Moore who looked fat back then in the, in this but now he looks thin compared you know the world's caught up if you know what I mean yeah. it's, it's actually kind of funny watching an old Michael Moore thing where I remember watching it going oh this jolly fellow like that's part of his look he's nice and jolly and cuddly or whatever but now you look at it and because the whole world's got fatter or whatever it's just like who's this slender man who's chasing after uh, General Motors so anyways but anyway so Someone showed me this documentary about uh, Michael Moore and he's sort of doing something in my wheelhouse uh, where he's like chasing after the the guy who's the head of General Motors about why you're closing down your factory in Flint, Michigan. So he was like way more political and ideological than me, but it was like the same kind of vibe. And then there was this other thing that was sort of subtext pranky, this guy called Chris Morris who did this show called brass eye that was a send-up of a current affairs show mm-hmm. and it was like just so pitch black and again like people hadn't been desensitized to the medium of pranks then or whatever and so it was like this weird thing was forming all over the world and like so that's what kind of is exciting i guess for me to look back at it like oh my god when all this stuff was kind sort of like for whatever reason was like bubbling and becoming a genre and then then even like on the total non-ideological thing, you had things like Jackass on MTV where, again, that was like gonzo, gorilla, but sort of like totally non-ideological. So it was kind of like fun being part of a, a, a moment in the world where, for whatever reason, all these different people over the world, and again, social media, the internet wasn't that big or whatever, so it's not like we're feeding off each other. It was just obviously it's like something kind of floating through the atmosphere that was... um was happening so that that was kind of exciting
0: and John you mentioned earlier too that your current book is also inspired by a former girlfriend and her father who died from lung cancer and the connection I guess for the purpose of this podcast is an ex-girlfriend inspired you know the right to bear grudges as well yeah maybe that's a secret an ex-girlfriend has to appear somewhere along the line
1: (laughs) yeah I don't know it's just I feel uncomfortable about things that are like purely ideological. Not not like from a moral perspective. Like I'm so happy when other people do it or whatever. But just as a storyteller, there's just something I just much prefer about infusing my stuff with these like personal stories and not like I don't think my my storytelling lands if I'm like too whiny about like politics. Like I just don't think people like it, you know. And so why would I do it even if I, if I wanted to do it? People much prefer me kind of like exploring these serious things. And there is the ideological subtext, but it's not like, yeah, I'm not like Michael Moore. Like Michael Moore gets away with it, but no one's going to put up with me whining. It was like It's like weird, even even with Philip Morris, or even going back a bit, like with Ray Martin, when, when I had a fight with him or whatever, a scuffle, a melee or whatever, there's a bit in the original footage where I kind of drop out of character because in it I'm pretending to be a current affairs reporter just making the most ridiculous accusation that he's slack because he's at home at 11 AM when everyone else is at work. And like the joke was that like his show accused the Paxton's of sleeping in and still being at home when they should be at work or whatever. So that was like the joke, but obviously like I'm not actually literally kind of calling Ray Martin lazy because he's at home. Like I don't care that he's at home and good on him or whatever. And I'm sure he works harder than me or whatever. But but anyway so i'm 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 in this I'm in the acting as an indignant current affairs reporter, like accusing him of being slack, like why are you at home at eleven a m when decent ordinary Australians are all at work? And he's bizarrely feeling like he has to defend himself, he's talking about his schedule, and he's talking about how well, listen, I'll have you know. I was at Channel 9 until 11pm last night and all this stuff. Anyway, so it's all going good, but then at one point I kind of drop out of character and I just am whiny. And even though he did manhandle me, I, I just, like, go into normal whiny. Like, I say something like, I can't remember, but just something like, yeah, you shouldn't touch me because it's that. I should be allowed to. I'm allowed to be here. even though." Th-. And it was like, I was no longer the jokey John Safran thing. I was like the whiny... um like it was a whiners and we're watching it and we just have to cut that bit out because it just didn't fit the story. It didn't fit my character. So even at the beginning of my career, when there's such a freaking David and Goliath difference, Ray Martin versus me, plus on an issue that I'm totally, maybe just incidentally, like in the right, like ethically and morally, like going after the news for screwing over young people's lives by, kind of calling them lazy and everything so i'm totally morally in the right and everything and still me kind of just whining (laughs) it just doesn't land it's just like oh shut up john like because there's, there's i don't even i can't quite pin it down but like there is some like unspoken thing that oh so even like with that ray martin thing it's like john's on an adventure he's clearly having fun and there's something awesome about him having fun and he's some kind of vector. Don't we all wish we could leave our cubicle and just go on adventures like John? But it's like a very different thing to like John whining about injustices in the world. And I found that even with this book on Philip Morris, like had to be really careful how everything was framed <laughs> that like not, like even that, me going against a world biggest cigarette company, like it didn't like land as a storytelling or land as emotionally true if I'm like, Too much, just you know, having a go, and it worked much better that there were like these other sort of personal, personal reasons why I might be annoyed by Philip Morris. You know, one being one being as simple as they said I could come behind the scenes, and they would show me, you know, I'd be let behind the curtains of the world's biggest cigarette company. I was like, oh my god, I can't believe my luck! So I go to Penguin Random House, and I get a book deal, all based on the premise that I can get behind the scenes with Philip Morris. And I sign this book deal. Anyway, then I go back to Philip Morris. I go, anyway. So, um, when can I come in? And then they're like, Uh, yeah, we've had another thing. No, you can't come in. And then it's like my ass is just left flapping in the wind because I've got this book deal, all premised on this thing I can't do anymore. And even like having that as a bit of the kind of energy behind me, trying to kind of get vengeance on Philip Morris, it sort of really helps things from a storytelling perspective, rather than just. I couldn't believe how many people they were killing, or whatever. Like, um, yeah. For some reason, my audience and an audience just much prefers this thing of me being a, a like me up to like danger, dangerous self-interest, or something like that, or da- dangerous kind of like personal <laughs> grudges. Even though, like, the audience does know it's all a bit of fun, and I'm kind of winking a bit, and I'm not really driven. Blah 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 blah.
0: John, we really appreciate you taking us through some of these awesome moments in your career, particularly those formative ones in the 90s, and just reflect on that time too. Maybe just one final question. I wonder when people come up to you or chat to you today, particularly those that maybe weren't there and remember Race Around the World, do people ask you about that? Like, Are young oh, yeah, gens yeah, yeah, totally hunting that and, and exploring what you were doing back then?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, it's so awesome when... Like new generations. Like I did notice it. Like they, it, it did become like young people start coming up to you and go, Oh, my parents love you and they showed me this thing. <laughs> it's so good. It's like, oh my God. And I was actually talking to I uh, once on Triple J I interviewed Barry Humphries about and I brought that up. I just go, Do you get this? Because I've just started to get this whole thing where like kids are like, Oh man, I, I watch your thing because my mum my really likes you or whatever. And I go and then I joked to him, I said, Oh, do you get that? But it's like, my grandmother said And Barry Humphrey said to me, he goes, John, I get my great-grandmother put me onto you. (laughs) So, yeah, so it's all, like, awesome because I like being a storyteller and also because that's how I engaged with work and authors and storytellers. Like, when I was at school and high school and at uni even, like, I just loved the little stories and, like, getting into the reality of their universe and kind of getting into the in-jokes. I, I freaking love it when like that happens to me and my work. Yeah. And like, like for instance, um, there's a little jokey thing in my new book where I, I mentioned my uh, PO box address. Like I give my actual PO box address and I, I've i got this sort of like jokey competition. Like you know, the first 10 people who contact me here, like um, will be invited to this, you know, Philip Morris pufferware party where we're going to try <laughs> out their new thing in my lounge room. And it's just like this embedded, like you don't expect it at all. It's just like embedded as a little cheeky thing in one of the paragraphs. And I went to my P.O. box. Already, people are already sending me things, <laughs> saying they want to be part of the Pufferware party. And I just love stuff like that because I just yeah. it just reminds me of how just the fun and the cheekiness and how like I used to engage with the world. Yes, yeah, so I I really love it when like people engage with the, like the strange universe of my of the world in my work. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I really love it.
0: Well, John, thank you. I really appreciate your time in taking part thank in you. this. Lovely to chat. Cool. Thank you very much. If you're enjoying the show, tell a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can get early and ad-free episodes by becoming a subscriber. Check out the episode notes for more information or the Mushroom channel in Apple Podcasts. I'm Jane Rocker. Thank you for listening.